spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Sister Zainab Ismail is known by many for her popular Instagram page, Zainab Fit for Allah. Prior to taking her shahada, she worked as a fitness trainer and nutritionist with the 1%, hopping between Las Vegas, Miami, the Hamptons, and Hollywood for work. A life-threatening car accident and deeper reflections on faith led her to Islam and a new lifestyle. She began taking classes for new Muslims at the New York City Mecca Center, where Fit for Allah was born. After studying further at Mecca Center on Mufasid and Seeker's guidance, she embarked on a da'wah opportunity to Mexico. That led to more da'wah trips in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Brazil, and Panama, and opened the door to a Spanish and later Portuguese translation of Dr. Esed Thersin's Being Muslim. In this episode, she reflects on how influential it was to learn about the Salaf and meet scholars like Habib Omar in her early years as a Muslim. She also talks about how important it is for new converts to be in spaces where they feel mercy, care, and compassion. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So pretty much I am born and raised in New York City. Uh, I originally grew up in the Bronx uh, with my parents, but then pretty much after high school, uh, once my parents divorced, I was basically on my own, uh, really without my parents. And then I moved to Brooklyn. But early on, for the most part, I was traditional Catholic, raised born and raised Catholic, went to church every Sunday with my father and my mother would attend sometimes. And pretty much I went through all of the requirements as a Catholic to continue, which is doing your first communion, going to what's called catechism classes, which is basically learning about the faith. And then later, maybe around, I think, seventh grade, is when we did our first communion, or maybe it was sixth grade, I don't really remember. Um, So they were pretty religious for what the Catholic requirements are. Uh, Really, it was just, you go to church on Sunday, you go to confession, occasionally on Saturdays, and then there were these random seven days throughout the year that you did go to church. There really was no other type of worship And there really is no other type of worship really involved. So it, you know, just thinking back and really that's kind of what slowly led me to Islam. I never really felt, uh, especially once I was on my own without my parents at all whatsoever by the time I was 18, without any kind of real spiritual guidance or like how do you conduct your life, that really was a catalyst for 
a lot of the things that then evolved after that time period. So once I went to college, uh, because I did graduate from high school very early, I was 15 years old in 12th grade, and I graduated barely at 16 years old. I was a freshman in uh, Pace University at 16, you know, so I quickly had to really adapt and learn and kind of just really figure out because my parents were breaking up, what am I going to do to survive? So really from that point on, really just barely 17, I had to decide how am I going to survive moving forward? And I decided to go into accounting, which quickly I realized was not my calling. I mean, it really was, uh, not I'm a people person I did graduate and then I did work in accounting for two years and I was like there is no way I'm going to be a CPA I'm such a people person and at the time really I'd been an athlete my entire life I'd been a high school and college cheerleader I was a classically trained dancer since a very early age maybe about seven I was very athletic always and that really was more my calling and to be with people so uh, at that same time, uh, you know, slightly post-college when I was working in accounting already, and I just really knew this was not what I wanted to do, I started competing in what's called fitness competitions. And while being in a national level competition in California, I encountered uh, at the place that we were, we went to the local gym because they were doing an, an event there. And they mentioned to me that there was a nutrition certification the following week in New York. And I was like, oh, wow. And I basically said, I'm going to go do that. And once I took that one certification, I took a leave of absence from accounting and I never turned back. And I've been in the field of health and fitness and wellness for 26 years. I know you uh, you worked in fitness for a really long time, um, and, and can you just like kind of talk about what that field was like, and then eventually um, how you uh, learned about Islam? I don't know if there's a relationship, oh, but... Yeah, certainly. I mean, in terms of Islam, living in New York my entire life, there's always been Muslims. As Since I was a child, I remember at the time, obviously they may not, obviously they're not really considered to be Muslim as we know it. There were things, you know, the something called the five percenters. They used to uh, sell oils and all these different things. And there were the people, you know, the brothers that would be in certain areas of the Bronx or Brooklyn uh, doing outdoor dawah were, were from, you know, the Nation of Islam. So the awareness of Muslims have always been around since my childhood. I just never made the connection, nor did I ever distinguish that, okay, they're, they're in New York, just like well, we all are. I mean, that's probably the great thing about being born and raised in New York. Like color, religion has never in my life ever been something that anyone ever thought about. Everyone just lived together and that was fine. So the fitness industry, uh, I rose through the ranks very quickly because of my business experience, uh, I was managing my first facility in Queens, New York, uh, their fitness and nutrition department because the owner of that little uh, business, he went on to work for the corporate office. 
So within a few months later from that, I, he passed ownership to me. And then I went to go manage a couple of other places and their development of their programs and their uh, training and nutrition team. And then uh, I came back to work in New York City in Manhattan at a very upscale celebrity uh, fitness center, David Barton Gym, where I basically exclusively worked with high-level celebrities uh, and notable people in the entertainment industry in from the magazines, from Vogue magazine, W magazine, uh, art dealers, basically the 1%. When they talk about the 1%, I, the gym was on Madison Avenue, which is where the 1% live. And it was a very interesting way to see life because now you're seeing life through the lens of people that really don't, for the most part, realize what's going, outside, what's going on outside of their lives, meaning the rest of the world. Like, uh, you know, they don't, you know, they wouldn't know what it is to be poor or middle class or not travel first class on a plane or just really have everything. And then from there, because of that notoriety, working with that very high-end clientele and celebrity clientele, I, through my knowledge and skill set, this is where really traditional slum really was a no-brainer for me because I came from a very purist way of learning from, I would say, my teachers in the world of movement are like the Sheikh Hamzas and the Imam Zaids of the movement world. So I'm like a direct student under these people. So I'm one of the first in the country to, to teach certain modalities. And then that's how I moved into teaching internationally and as well as working with professional athletes uh, that are in Major League Baseball, football, and basketball. And really, once I entered the world of the professional athletes, it was like something out of a video. Private jets, my routine was basically Miami, the Hamptons, Hollywood, and Las Vegas. And it was a very colorful experience, to say the least. The, it's like a 180-degree opposite from Muslim lifestyle. And, you know, basically I did and saw every single thing that the dunya could possibly provide. And at the end, you're still like, okay, something is missing. The, at the time, I didn't know fitra, what that was, but I was definitely being called to something and then in 2005, I had a near-death car accident, which I was traveling uh, to my office that I had at the time. And I had a new, uh, I had just gotten an SUV. It was the first time I've gotten an SUV. It was a small SUV. And it flipped across the highway I was driving on. And subhanAllah, I walked away with just a cut, with a concussion, but for lack of a better words, it was like walking away without a scratch. And uh, I was in ICU for maybe a day because they thought they, when they did the CAT scan, they thought they saw blood on my brain, which would have really been fatal for me because from what I understand, the type of accident I have had, no one survives. And literally 
all I had was a, I was in the hospital for one week. And at one point the hospital administrator came to my bedside and said, I needed to see who was the person that survived this description of an accident. And also they saw my, they had towed my car and I think they had a picture of it in the file. So he said, I don't know what you believe in, but whatever it is, you go find out what God has in store for you and you go do it. Of course, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I didn't become Muslim for four more years, but definitely that was the first of many things that were a clear sign that something had to change. Great. Thank you. And that's such a crazy, amazing story. SubhanAllah. Um, Thank you. So, so what happened over those next four years? I mean, what kind of attracted you to Islam? I mean, about it? well, there really was nothing that attracted me ever to Islam. It was never that Islam was the what I was looking for. It found me. Uh, I, like I said, especially in Brooklyn, probably 50% of my friends were Muslim, Arab American, but it was, you, I mean, for the most part, I was always around uh, brothers, guys, because, you know, in my non-Muslim lifestyle, I didn't really hang out with girls. Uh, if I did, it would be like my one or two friends. So you just didn't interact with women like you do now as a Muslim because of, you know, it's just better that way. And definitely we see the wisdom. Uh, so my, I was training for a biathlon and my training partner, uh, who had been my cycling partner for several years happened to be, uh, his mom is Tunisian and his dad, Alayyar Hamo, is Egyptian. So we would casually talk about faith while we would be cycling 50 miles, 100 miles a day. Um, but it was never, he never was, it was just very subtle. And I think that you know, just seeing him interact with his family at certain points, that was probably what was more impacting to me because I really had no family uh, unit as I, you know, at the time, especially once my parents were no longer in the picture, that was definitely something that uh, the emphasis on family was the only attractive thing to me about Islam. Like, because none of the other things mattered because that wasn't in my, that wasn't in my, you know, cognitive frame at the time. Uh, and again, so I was, you know, traveling Miami, Hollywood, Las Vegas, the Hamptons, uh, overseas, Europe to teach, you know, flying in private jets, uh, you know, having all the designer, this, that, and all that. And then I, in 2009 had to go to a friend's wedding and she happened to be my client and she wasn't really, she wasn't going to go in until I arrived. This is her wedding at a Catholic church. So I went to the wedding and I sat there and I hadn't gone and I hadn't participated in a Catholic uh, mass in some time, maybe like a couple, a couple months or so. And I knew that, you know, the part of the mass where you go up and take what's called the Eucharist, you're supposed to have gone to uh, confession. And then I just sat there watching everyone go up. I was literally the only person that stayed sitting down. And I was like, there is no way it's Saturday. 
there's no way everyone went to confession. So I thought, I was like, this is just way too hypocritical. I can't participate in this anymore. And then I think with all the things that were going on within the Catholic church, I was just really disenchanted at that point. Um, and also my father is born again, Christian, uh, evangelical. So his way of Christianity completely turns me off because it's like almost browbeating you with the Bible in the sense, like basically like Dawa that is so aggressive and it's our way or it's our way or the highway that turned me off from like the beginning. So I think that was the catalyst that I was just like, I don't, I didn't want to be Christian. It didn't have to do with Islam. I just didn't want to be Christian anymore. Uh, what I did know is because most of my clients are of the Jewish faith, I knew when I walked out of that church after that mass of that wedding, I knew I didn't want to be Christian and I knew I didn't want to be Jewish. Why I didn't want to be Jewish was I knew that they really didn't let you in. You had to go to classes for years. You had to get married. They weren't exactly open to letting people convert. So that ruled that out. So then I was like, okay, what's left of the Abrahamic faiths? So I knew I did want to still be within the Abrahamic tradition. So I said, okay, what's left? Islam. I was like, okay, half my friends are Muslim. I wonder, is it something really difficult like it is to become Jewish? And I, and I in no way mean to offend anyone who's Jewish because I did. I, all of my clients were Jewish. So I was like, oh, okay. I wonder what that would be like. But I quickly said, mm, that's not going to be my choice. Um, so I said, let me Google it before I go to the wedding reception or the party end of the wedding. I Googled it and I was like, that's it? You just have to say that? I was like, okay. So I called my cycling partner and his sister and I was like, hey, they're like, hey, I'm like, I'm thinking about taking my Shahada. They're like, what? Literally. Uh, I hope I did that justice. Uh, so they were like, okay, let's meet up. We'll go get you a bunch of books. Now, I uh, always incline from the heart and intuitively and what I feel so I don't intellectualize things initially. I do uh, root everything through knowledge and through direct knowledge from a teacher. But when I'm going to make a decision, I always first, it's something intuitive that I feel through my heart. So I was like, okay. So we went to the mosque. And of course, I was dressed so super inappropriate. Everyone's looking at me like, I mean, it was the most, it was the most scary thing because luckily the bookstore was next to the masjid. So I just passed through the gate. I didn't even go in. I went into the bookstore. So of course, uh, my friend loads me up with a stack of books. I felt like it was the first day of freshman, uh, you know, freshman college of first year you go to the bookstore and you're like walking with this big stack of books 
I get a Quran, a Quran with Arabic, English transliteration, a tafsir book, some other prayer book. I don't even know. Literally, I probably looked at two pages. I was like, I'm not going to read this. It doesn't even make sense to me. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm reading. Like, why am I reading? I'm, I, I, I feel this. It's not something I want, I'm going to read. So I did, without knowing what intentions are, make the intention. I knew I wanted to be Muslim by Ramadan because I wanted to fast. I didn't know anything that was entailed. Zero. Nada. Nothing. So that was in March. So I was coming back from a trip to L.A., from Hollywood, uh, working with clients and also seeing one of my mentors. And I was walking back to my car that was parked in long-term parking. And as I felt it, like, the, uh, and I guess it's, I can only describe it like hushu in prayer. There was this, or like it hem, like it was knowledge that was placed in me. It was like, in my heart, I knew I was ready to take my shahada. I didn't read anything. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't anything. I just felt it. It was in my heart. It was like Allah put it in my heart. Okay, now you are ready. So again, I called my friend and his sister. I was like, I'm ready to take my shahada. And of course, again, they go, Lee! and uh, they're like, okay, we're going to go this Friday to the masjid during Juma, and you're going to take a shahada. But then my friend Ahmed said, but you don't need to do that. Uh, you can, if you know what you're saying and you know, you're aware and you understand, you can say it by yourself. Uh, I was like, okay, well, lo and behold, we get to Friday, messages get crossed. We don't get to go to the masjid. I end up that night, June 12, 2009, taking my shahada in front of my computer with Allah and the angels as my witnesses. Um, what were some of the challenges you faced um, when you first took your shahada? Everything. Uh, I had this life that I lived that was everything A to Z that a Muslim should not do left, right, back, forward, up, down. There was just no way to cut it. I had to, there was no middle ground. I basically went MIA or ghosted my entire life as I knew it because I just did not know how to strike a balance with every possible thing that would clearly be an obstacle to me becoming a practicing Muslim. Um, because I didn't know what to do or anything, I didn't know there was a problem for months because I, I didn't know how to practice. I didn't know what you had to practice. I didn't know there was prayer. I didn't know anything. I took my shahada, but no one told me anything. So mm -hmm. let's just fast forward. So really, I didn't think of anything as a problem until I finally got to the first day of Ramadan and I call my friends and I'm like, uh, I don't know how to pray yet. I've been asking you for three weeks to show me. They're like, okay, did you start fasting? I was like, yeah, I just had a green juice. They're like, ah, ha, ha, that's not fasting. I was like, well, 
I'm a nutritionist. You didn't specify what kind of fast. So I assumed a juice fast. Mm. So I didn't, again, no one told me anything. So now I took my Shahada in June and Ramadan started like August 23rd. So Ahmed and Fatma were like, okay, come over. We're going to be praying. Uh, It was still Duhod time. I was like, okay, I just finished working. So I pray behind him and, and me and his sister pray next to each other. She's like, oh, you're in shorts and a tank top. I need to put something on you to pray. I was like, okay. So she gives me like one of those onesie prayer outfits uh, from Egypt. And uh, she was like, just follow along with me. Okay, so I follow. And then she sits with me and we print out. Now we go searching the internet, learn how to pray. So we print out, we find sheets, uh, a, a website, and we print out the sheets step by step how to pray. So they're like, here, you got to do this. No one told me there was a suhoor. No one told me there was a tarawi. No one told me. I don't even know if I knew there was five prayers. I don't even, I don't remember. It just was like so vague because I knew I knew nothing. I was just focused on, okay. And I don't even, oh, I definitely didn't know like prayer times, like there was a designated time. So I don't even know how I figured that out. Um, And she gave me a square scarf, like to pray. I was like, but I don't even have anything possibly modest to even pray in. So I had to pray in my pajamas because that was the closest thing, like sweatpants and a sweatshirt were the only possible modest things I had. And then I threw the square scarf on and I watched every YouTube video to figure out how to wear it because I was a fashionista and, you know, there was just no way I was going to wear the scarf looking like I just, you know, got hit by a truck or something. So I, uh, I just continued like that with the sheets. So it probably took me, I was probably, and again, no one told me you have to do the prayer in Arabic, you know, or it wasn't emphasized for it to be valid. Like nothing. I knew, I really knew nothing. So I finally memorized the Fatiha in three, it took me three weeks. The tashahud, I don't even know how, many, how long that took because it really was the hardest for me to memorize. I definitely didn't even know what I was saying, but I was trying my best and making that intention. So my first Ramadan was like a blur, but I knew when I finished Ramadan, then no one told me about what eat. They, no one told me Eid. So I didn't even know when we finished. So I was like, okay, this is not cool. Like, this is so not cool. And no one invited me to do anything for Eid. So, but alhamdulillah, it ended up that my younger brother came to my house on what I figured out was the day that you stopped fasting, Eid. And he cried his eyes out thinking he lost me for Christmas. And and he was just traumatized by the, because he was the first person I told. I hadn't even told my mom, but, uh, you know, my mom lived somewhere else and, you know, we didn't really have that kind of relationship. So she wouldn't be the first person I would tell anyway. So my brother went through his own kind of like feeling about it, but at least I helped him understand that 
you know, this is going to be some changes, but I can't tell what's going to happen. I don't know because I don't know enough. Um, but I said, you're not losing me. If anything, you're gaining me. We'll have a better relationship. He was like, okay. So after Ramadan, I was like, okay, I clearly need to learn a lot more because this, this was not fun. Being in the dark about every single aspect, not knowing, not be, I mean, it just was, it was really rough. So I Googled new Muslim program, becoming Muslim, and boop, pops up the Mecca Center. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, may Allah preserve and elevate everyone that has to do with Mecca Center. So I was like, oh, a new Muslim program. And it was starting uh, actually on October 31st. So basically, I was conducting life as a non-Muslim up until, like, except for Ramadan, for whatever I knew. Uh, but pretty much, I was living like non-Muslim still because I didn't know anything to do other than fasting and trying to pray. That was the only thing I did. But when I went to Mecca Center, alhamdulillah, that is where... I entered traditional Islam from day one. I never went anywhere else. I had not gone to a mosque for eight months until like eight months into my Shahada because it was terrifying. Everyone was mean. No one was helpful. Everyone would kind of like yell at you because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be dressed a certain way or not. It, even to this day, I don't go to certain places that, I kind of have PTSD from, to be quite honest with you. Uh, unless it's like a janaza or, you know, a wedding or something like that. Um, but yeah, I never went to a mosque. I mean, my first mosque for a Juma was eight months into my Shahada. Actually, no, six months, six months. And it was the, what's called Park 51 or the AKA, the uh, World Trade Center mosque. That's where I used to go. <laughs> And it was different because it was a large room. There was no heat. It was the winter time. We would be freezing, but the men would be all the way in the front and the women were in the back. So there were no dividers. So I, I, my first experience with the exception of being basically chased out of the local Arab mosque uh, was this place that was much more inviting and had no barriers and the women weren't in a basement watching a video screen and everybody wasn't in a black abaya, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that, but it was very foreign to me as a new, new Muslim knowing nothing. But again, once I went to Mecca center that put the pieces together. And again, my school being every single teacher at Mecca center is traditionally trained uh, and has Senate and Isnad, meaning they've learned from a scholar to a scholar to a scholar to a scholar back to the Prophet All of the teachers primarily there, really all of the teachers with the exception of one uh, for our Women's Matters fiqh, uh, all of our teachers were Shafi. So I automatically became Shafi as a result of the school. And uh, quickly within a few months, I was volunteering at the school and that's really where Fit for Allah was born. Uh, perfect segue. Can you talk about Fifrala? Um, what was the inspiration? How was it born? So uh, my my first 
teacher, Alayud Hamo, uh, who was my first Wali or Muslim guardian, uh, was my new Muslim teacher. And he passed away of sickle cell anemia uh, maybe a year after our new Muslim program. or Yeah, about a year, I would say. And lo and behold, he actually was one of the first students of Sheikh Newman Keller in New York. Wow. I had no idea. I, I, didn't find, I didn't find out until a few months before he passed away. And then, I know this is like a tangent, but I think it was, it was very relevant. And I got to ask him after this series, this series of YouTube uh, audios of Sheikh Newman Keller, uh, Rahimullah, was teaching health and fitness or talking about health and fitness. Amazing. The first time I heard a scholar speak about health and fitness in a credible way in my world, like that I would say, okay, that's credible. Otherwise, for the most part, most health and fitness information was kind of very minimal at best. And then one of the other sisters told me, oh, he's a student of Sheikh Nur. I was like, what? But he's my Wali. I've known him for two years. What? Never told you. Where, where, what? Where was I? Well, what? And at this point, I don't know anything about We've been learning the books, and I know I'm fast forwarding, but I just wanted to preface who I'm speaking about. Yeah. We were studying the books of Imam Haddad and Imam Ghazali when I was only six months, like six months, eight months oh. being Muslim. No one was telling us what Sasawuf or spirituality was. We were just learning it. Yeah. So it just was very profound when months before his death, his passing, Allah Yerhamu, I turned to him and I was like, you never told me you, now at this time, I'm starting to understand that like, especially we covered Reliance of the Traveler, that Sheikh Newman Keller was, I still didn't understand who he really is, but I knew he was like this major scholar of the heart. Mm -hmm. So I said, you never told me you were a student of Sheikh Nul. He was like, and I'll never forget this. And I tell this to anybody who asks me any kind of similar question. And this is my, always the reply I give them. Spirituality is another veil that Allah has to lift for you. Mm. Oof. SubhanAllah. So now going back. So we did the new Muslim program. Uh, and with, with Brother Khaled, Ustad Khaled, which it's amazing how after his death, I've seen pictures with him and Habib Ali and Jifri and Imam Zaid visiting uh, the maqam, the grave of Hajj Malik al-Shabazz. I've seen, like, uh, like, actually he took his shahada with Imam Zaid when Imam Zaid was the imam in Connecticut. So it's, like, interesting how the dots started to connect, you know, so after new Muslim program, uh, my main teacher after that, who I still hold dear to my heart, I don't see him as often, is Imam Amin Muhammad, the Imam of uh, Masjid Muhammad in Atlantic City. That is how I learned Akida, Fiqh, 
and mainly many matters of spirituality because we covered texts, multiple texts. And uh, it was during that time that as I was also starting to volunteer at the school. And on Saturdays, once a month, we had something called Sisters Circle. So also who I consider a teacher, my friend, my sister, uh, <coughs> uh, Sister Wajiha, uh, was the Ustedo Wajiha was the person who led the sister circle. Now at this point, I'm still dressing in my gym clothes the way I would because Saturdays I work with clients in the morning and then I would go to the sister circle. So she, I guess, could observe that I seem very fit based on my posture, the way I stand, the way I carry myself. And I was clearly very a New Yorker because mm -hmm. of my overall just way I carried myself so she just you know in trying to make conversation she asked me so what do you do you know what do you do for work and I started to tell her what I do and she was like what oh my god you have to come and teach us and I was like what oh uh, oh uh, okay what do you mean she's like how about next month for the sister circle you come and teach us some fitness and nutrition or, or give us some words or, you know, whatever you think you're the expert. I was like, Oh, okay. This is weird. All right. So we had been learning in class with Imam Amin that our actions are by intentions and that which we intend is what we get out of that even mundane activity for there to be virtuous. Uh, it, it be a virtuous deed. So I said, okay, I'm going to have to name this class something that's relevant to the purpose and the intention and the purpose being to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I was like, hmm, hmm. I was like, well, we are getting fit for the sake of Allah. So I'm going to call it fit for Allah. And I came back gave the administrator of the school here's what I want to name the class and here's a description of what we're going to do and they were like oh wow okay that's mashallah that's subhanallah ajeeb that's a cool name and uh from there on in uh it then became a monthly class then it moved to being a weekly kind of boot camp gathering slash halakha uh, because what I try the best to convey is what our teachers teach us. And that's number one, bringing the hearts together. And in that same number one, bringing those hearts closer to Allah and the Prophet Wasallam. So the intentions and the goal is always to do first those two things. That really is where as Dr. Umar Farooq says, we have to take, change our cognitive frame that we don't view fitness and nutrition as this worldly thing, which we have the ability through worldly, um, you know, gyms and equipment and things. And obviously through creation, we can walk outside in nature and all these things. We have the ability. Allah has given us things on the earth to make this, a reality because ultimately 
our one body is in a manner between us and the law. And he's given us this body with a certain health and ability. Mm-hmm. So we need to hopefully, inshallah, return to him in that way. I think that, you know, there is such an emphasis, and this is what I've noticed as a person not born from any culture, uh, other than being an American Puerto Rican person. Uh, I don't have any rituals culturally that have to be with me, say, during Ramadan. So I just find that the excessive amount of food during Ramadan is so completely opposite to the prophetic tradition that it's actually sometimes painful to see the excess. And I think that the times that we're in right now, because it's not that easy to go and buy everything, everybody's going to have, like they should, one protein, one carbohydrate, some vegetables, a salad, maybe soup, something simple. And you're definitely not going to be wasting food now because it is challenging to go to the supermarket because you have to put your mask on, put your bandana on, put your whatever on. You really have to go in a mindset to, you know, you're going to interact with people and obviously social distancing is going to possibly be compromised at some point. So I think in the times that we're in right now, it's important for people to reduce the excess. Uh, the Muslim communities, the percentage of heart disease and diabetes is astronomically high. And it's purely based on poor lifestyle choices. I also would open every class with a dua to get fit for the sake of Allah, to draw closer to Allah and the Prophet wasallam. Uh, it was also Imam Amin that taught us very early on, and it's something that has stuck with me. And everybody always knows when, if I'm at Al Makasit, which is my second home, if they hear in the live stream somebody saying, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they know it's my voice because Imam Amin taught us since I was, we call it baby, I call it baby Muslim. Since I was a baby Muslim, I learned if you heard the name of the Prophet being stated or said or out loud, you say sallallahu alayhi wasallam loud and proud. And I've always, that's something that I've always carried and may Allah preserve and raise the rank of Imam Amin Muhammad for all that he has taught us in so many ways. Uh, it's always funny when I do a talk, if he's present, I, I always make him cry. <laughs> SubhanAllah. It's like, oh, because it's just so funny, his you know, his, his wife used to say we were like baby birds. Like, feed us, feed us. And he really has always treated us like his babies, like we're his children. So, subhanAllah. So, nonetheless, through Imam Amin, we got to see Sheikh Samad Nas all the time. We got to see another Sheikh that came from Yemen. Uh, that was our first exposure to Tarim, uh, Sheikh Imaduddin Abu Hijli. And we got to see um, uh, Sheikh Walid Arifahi. We got to see all, like, we got to meet and see and speak and sit at the feet of all these scholars of the heart and of all the sciences. In I was a, maybe a year, a year and a half being Muslim. And then 
in 2011, it's actually the anniversary. Uh, it was a couple of days ago. It was either March 31st, 2011 or April 1st, 2011. I was watching the tour go through Canada and all the United States when Habib Umar bin Hafiz, Hafiz came to the West, to really not the West, but to, the, to North America. And he, the only place he came in New York City, he stopped at the 96th Street Mosque, I think, to pray. He did a talk and a long, incredible dua at ICNYU, the Islamic Center of New York University. But the main gathering was at Mecca Center. And they did. And it was my first time. I didn't know what a maulid was. We didn't know what a maulid was. But it was my first maulid was with, with Habib Umar. And everyone who came, it was Sheikh Yahya, Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya, Mustafa Davis, uh, Usted, uh, Osama Cannon. It was Usted Amjad Tarsin. It was Sheikh Hamdi. It was, and so, and so, and so, and so. I mean, that was my first time seeing them and them speaking to us because they were translating. I was, I was actually volunteering because the founder of the school, she's, uh, uh, her family is from Singapore, Malaysia. She had me working at the ladies' entrance, and then my best friend was working at the brothers' entrance. And we had a clipboard with the names of all the students because we had a very small school, and we can only let in first the people on the list. And so I was at the ladies' entrance uh, letting everyone in because the building we would have, if we created a fire hazard, they would have called the police and the fire department, and they would have shut us down. So, I mean, maybe I was Muslim a year and a half. Like, so again, I have no, I don't know. I know who Habib Omar is. I follow the whole tour, but I don't really know who Habib Omar is. Uh, and I definitely don't know who all the other Shiuk are at all. That was the first time I ever saw them. Um, but I remember exactly seeing them all, you know, <laughs> next to Habib because when they they finally came and we were serving them dinner in the office and uh i was setting up the table and i set up habib omar's plate and cup and you know like you know i was instructed what to do because obviously i wouldn't know the adab or the etiquette to do any of this so they come in and now the students are all inside so i come out to help the uh, founder of the school, but Habib Umar wanted to meet her and thank her and ask her about the school. So all of our teachers, and of course, Imam Amin is right there as well. Uh, they come over. Habib Umar is standing. Now I'm standing next to her and Habib Umar is diagonal for me about three, four feet. Like literally right there. Like, I mean, if I stick, if I were to stick my arm out, his body would be there. So that's how close I was to him. And he's kind of looking down sideways. I've probably not told this story 
led, I've never told this story on any kind of public platform. So he's looking down and then Sheikh Yahya is on one side and Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya is on the, like literally right next to him. So I think it's like, who's going to translate? So he asked, um, you know, to be introduced to her. And um, he said, how amazing the school, you're teaching traditional knowledge in the Islamic sciences for new Muslims, Shafi teachers, beautiful, mashallah. And then he made a dua uh, for the school while I, I'm standing right there. So I didn't move. I felt like I was paralyzed. So they are literally, it's like Habib Omar's here. They're all around him like this. I mean, like, like this. It was so ajeeb. And then they all go into the office. And then uh, at the end of them finishing dinner, I was the person that had to clean up everything. Like the cup, the plates, you know, all of that. So I was the one that was able to kind of pick up everything afterwards. And then they proceeded to have uh, the maulid, which I had no idea. It just sounded mm -hmm. like some nasheeds and a talk. Had no idea. And most of the people sitting in the audience, we were all, I would say 70% were new Muslims. So we just followed along. It was cool. It was amazing. My heart was just like, it was actually the first time I probably cried. Oh, I forgot about that. It's probably the first time a teacher made me cry and I had no idea what he was saying. Mm -hmm. No idea. Not at all. Not even remotely. My heart knew. I mean, he burst my, I mean, in the, in, I mean, I was so close to him in that moment. That's where my heart burst open. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what happened. Something happened at that moment. And it came to reveal itself as we traveled through my journey. Uh, and again, the only other teacher after that, that I had like a combustion of tears occur was at my first RIS, Reviving the Islamic Spirit in 2013, was Habib Ali Al-Jifri. Like him walking in, it was the same exact reaction I had with Habib Umar. I said, well, something, there's some connection there. <laughs> and subhanAllah. So that was Mecca Center. And then, you know, it just continued until I think it was around that time, uh, maybe two years after that, in 2013, Sheikh Yahya came to do uh, be our keynote speaker at the Mecca Center fundraiser. So then that's when we saw Sheikh Yahya again. So I think that's maybe just when Sheikh Yahya moved back uh, to the States uh, from Tarim. And that was that connection was made from that moment from Habib Umar, then when Sheikh Yahya came. And then once Sheikh Yahya moved to the Allentown, Albertus area, I started going there from the very beginning uh, which is probably now six or six, maybe six years, I think now, seven, almost seven. And subhanAllah, it has been an incredible journey ever since. Amazing. SubhanAllah. Um, do you feel like 
um, meeting and seeing these people at the early stages of when you became Muslim had a big influence and impact on your journey? I mean, it has been a clear, like, Allah has written all of this for you because unlike very few other Muslims that I know, new Muslims that I know in such a short amount of time of their Islam, especially as a female, I do know some brothers who have had the opportunity to sit at the feet of all of our major scholars, um, but they don't teach in any capacity. Um, it's been very clear that because I was a teacher before Islam in my prospective field, that Allah just took everything I knew as a non-Muslim, recodified it and put it in a way that would benefit Muslims and just took me along on a path of being at the feet of the scholars. And then really after uh, Mecca Center, it was the next person who really is one of my greatest mentors is Imam Zaid Shakir. He has supported me and helped me and has guided me in many instances really early on from like 2012 when I first met him. And that was three years into my Islam. And then from Imam Zaid is how I met Sheikh Hamza and then later went to spend time with Sheikh Hamza in Umrah in 2014 and 15. And really in 2015 is where that relationship with Sheikh Hamza really took, like, it's like we sowed the seeds, you know, we planted the seeds, then we irrigated the seeds and then the seeds grew and really it just flourished also into, I mean, I remember, and I've never, I've not even told the person that he was with, who is also one of my teachers, this story. So I was at ISNA uh, in in 2013. I was presenting uh, because at the time I was involved in a women's, uh, I was the vice president of a women's organization, Naduna, and we had a women's, uh, a Muslim woman's DVD for exercise. And I had a booth at the 2013 ISNA. And at the time I was already studying um, Sheikh Hamza's lessons of purification of the heart, which I'd gotten at Mecca Center. And at the time, what was called Poor Man's Book of Assistance, which later became Path to God. Like they changed the name of the lessons. Mm So I was studying those lessons uh, and I saw Shikamza and then another friend of mine who actually uh, is a student of Dr. Umar and, and, and recently in the past few years moved to Cairo to study uh, brother Arthur Richards. Uh, he's from Florida and he's got a, a a significant presence on social media with his writings, especially being in Cairo and, and studying uh, sacred knowledge and coming from a different ideological background to then in Cairo finding spirituality and that path and, and, and that really changing his life in a different way. But that's a different story. 
so Arthur saw that I was like flustered. <laughs> oh my God, that's Sheikh Hamza. And uh, he was like, do you want to meet him? I was like, oh, 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 I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I was like a deer in front of the headlights. And then I was like, oh, wow, he's with his oldest son. Hello, it was Dr. M. Asad Tarsin. It wasn't his son. I thought all that time that was his son because he was so close to him. Like it was, has to be his son. I never thought it was like student-teacher relationship, friend relationship, you know. And also Dr. Asad looks so young. I mean, mashallah. And I've never even told Dr. Asad this story. And I've traveled with Dr. Asad to Brazil, which we'll talk about later. And also done Umrah with him. Uh, so I'm like, okay. So I'm like, okay, I got to have a good question. I was like, well, I want to ask him, what's the best way to study the lessons? So Arthur brings us up to him. And there's brothers that are kind of, you know, like when somebody's talking, they talk and they talk and they talk and they're not giving anyone else a chance to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And there was no one else. So he literally turned away from the men that were talking to him, basically taking, you know, being rude to not give me a chance to speak to him. He turned away from them, turned to me and said, Salaamu Alaikum. And I said, alaikum. you know, like, I don't even know how it came out. So I was like, subhanAllah like he's like right here mm -hmm. and i was like well i had a question i've been studying purification of the heart in poor man's book of assistance and what would be the best way to approach the lessons yeah. he said well purification of the heart first and poor man's book of assistance is the continuation i said thank you he's like very good how long have you been muslim and then you know we talked for two seconds and then that was it and then that was the moment I decided that if ever I get to do Umrah, I wanted to be with Sheikh Hamza. So uh, a couple of months before that Isna, I went, I was, I had intended to go to Rihla, but that year Imam Zaid wasn't going. So we were so bummed. We said, let's go to Turkey anyway. I have a good friend that lives in Turkey. She works for Turkish Airlines and she's been on several Rihlas. So my friend and I go to Turkey for two weeks. We stay in uh, the Taksim, Taksim area, which was literally just a couple of weeks before what happened, the riots and, and changes mm -hmm. in Taksim happened. We were kind of there at the very beginning because I saw there was a very large police presence. And I was like, hmm, I'm from New York. This is not normal in yeah. a touristy area. So nonetheless, everywhere I went, I know I jumped around, but it all has relevance because it comes back to Sheikh Hamza. Every single place I went. Now, this was a couple of months before I met Sheikh Hamza. Everywhere I went. I wanted to go to every mosque and mind you, there's one on every street. If you've ever been to Istanbul, I burst out into tears. As soon as the Imam goes, Allahu Akbar. <gasps> I mean, it was just explosion of hushua that I would have. It was, my friend was so like, I want some of that. 
she was like, you would make everyone cry because then I'd be like, I'm a new Muslim, I'm American, you know, all that. So then the ladies were so, there were so many ladies that had not met a, a convert before. Anyway, I literally must have cried in over 50 mosques. I even went to a little mosque that was like for people who work in the Taksim kind of main street, which wasn't a big, beautiful mosque. I still cried there. And then there was a woman next to me, subhanAllah. She started crying. Then we communicated. We don't, she didn't speak. They didn't speak. They, like the younger daughter spoke a little bit of English. We figured out she had just made a dua like that day before and that prayer because we prayed and then that's where the connection started. She had just made a dua the day before and that day for Allah to give her a sign because she was struggling with her faith. She was struggling, like really struggling. And for her, meeting a convert, random, crying, never crying. She never has ever had hushua like that in her prayer. That was her sign that Allah loved her and that she needed to continue. And that, we were all bawling, <laughs> you know, and it was like a little, little musella, nothing like, it was like a, a musella for workers, like to just run in between, you know, prayers or like, you know, for the prayers. And that was like, so subhanAllah. So that was in June. And then in August, September, that at the end of August, beginning of September is when I'm in Sheikh Hamza. Then that December, okay, so now this is September 2013, I meet Sheikh Hamza. Then I'm like, I have to see Sheikh Hamza again. I go to RAS, but I go to the knowledge retreat. Mm -hmm. Not only do I see Sheikh Hamza again, that's when I see Habib Ali and Jifri and have again another very spiritual, impacting, overwhelming feeling that I cannot describe to this day. And then a couple of months later, so eight months after my trip or like less than a year later from uh, Turkey, 2014, I'm on sacred caravan, Umrah, which it comes a Yusuf. And then I return again in 2015, which it comes a Yusuf. The first year we didn't talk as much, but then in 2015, we spoke regularly, daily, and uh, it was the beginning of that, that connection to the Bay Area. And I then would start to travel to the Bay Area regularly. So it was like Al-Makasit, Toronto, and the Bay Area. Awesome. Um, so were you studying at Zaytuna or were you, um, you were no, just I visiting Shikamza? I was, I was just visit, I would visit uh, like if they had the Grand Maulid okay. or to go see the Zaytuna campus and the Chatleaf campus. Um, then there was one year that uh, Sheikh Yahya had a, a, a weekend retreat. This was when I think he had already just moved back, moved to the East Coast, mm -hmm. but he had like one last retreat. Uh, and then that was about, that was actually, that had to be 2015 because that was, I sat with Sheikh Yahya for the first time to ask him advice because I was about to go on my first Dawa trip. And that was in 2015. Okay. 
so pretty much I'd been studying al Makassid and Mecca Center, and then online too with Seeker's Guidance. Perfect, yes. Can you talk about the Dawah trips you do in South Central America? Where did the idea come from and how did you get involved in doing them? So basically, um, during a, uh, a class with Habib Umar bin Hafiz, at the end of the class, um, he said, if anyone can go help the sheikh in Chiapas, Mexico, any of the North American students, please go. So I was like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> I've never done anything like that. But I was like, okay, how am I going to go? So I said, well, it said to reach out to the admin uh, in Tarim. But I was like, oh, that's probably going to take a little longer. Let me see if I can find the sheikh, the imam, on social media. Lo and behold, he was there. Okay. He's friends with Sheikh Faraz, Rabani, and a couple of other people I knew, mutual uh, friends uh, that are either teachers or students of knowledge or seekers of knowledge. So I said, oh, let me just message him and take a chance. So I messaged the imam and I said, hi, salam alaikum. I'm Sister Zainab. Uh, I saw that Habib Umar uh, mentioned that if any students can come and help you to please do so. Um, I teach prophetic nutrition and nutrition and fitness and, and, you know, I can teach part ein or things like that. Uh, you know, but I've learned basically Shafi, uh, but I do have an understanding of at least the wudu uh, and the prayer uh, for the Hanafi method. And he was like, oh, yes, we need help. We need help. And I was talking about now we were getting close to Ramadan that year, 2015. So I was thinking after to go after Ramadan. He's like, oh, I was like, well, I can always go after Ramadan. He was like, no, we, you know, subhanAllah, we need help now. We need, you know, we don't have sisters that can teach. And, you know, I was like, wait, well, I'm not like an ustedo. You know, I'm like, I, I, I can't really teach anything major. I was like, I was like, maybe I can, you know, I can try to do something maybe from book of assistance or beginning of guidance. You know, I said, but I don't feel like I'm, I would be considered authorized to cover these texts yet, yet, uh, or anything like that. I said, but I can do Fart Ein. He was like, okay, well, you know, it'd be really great if you can come in Ramadan. I was like, okay. I didn't know how. I didn't know. I, all I could think is like, wow, Ramadan, because I'm a fitness and nutrition person, I have a very specific schedule. I have my clients, I have my specific food, I have my pattern, I have like I have my routine. And this meant disrupting my very what I call solid Ramadan routine. Because Ramadan is very hard for me. Fasting is probably the hardest act of worship for me personally, uh, because dehydration 
really, really affects me a great deal because I am a very hot, warm temperament. So dehydration really is severe for me. So I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? So I I started fundraising privately um, to also bring some donations to buy, to shop, you know, uh, I knew that they were going to really be poor. I didn't know how it was going to be, but I Googled and kind of tried to see, get a feel for what the community could possibly be like. There were a couple articles and things online about them. Uh, I had another friend uh, who had been visiting another community, um, a smaller community nearby. Uh, so I had an idea from her. And then I told my best friend, hey, come to Mexico with me for 10 days, first, you know, eight or 10 days of Ramadan. She was like, okay. So uh, here we go, the two Americans. I'd never been to Southern Mexico other than going to Mexico as a non-Muslim for like spring break or vacation. I'd never been to Mexico. So, and I because fasting is so hard for me, I was like, you know what, even though I'm traveling, I am still going to fast. I do not want to have to make up another day after Ramadan. I'm going to just tough it out. The hardest fast I probably have ever had was traveling back from Mexico on the plane when they serve the food at say six and then in the air, uh, if tar was going to be like two hours later. So I had to sit with all the trays and everyone eating. And it was probably, and, I'm, and, and it wasn't that, I don't know, it was like the most bizarre thing. I was like, wow, I'm like, this was the hardest fast because I had to sit and watch the food being in front of me. Anyway, side story, that was a side story. So nonetheless, we get there and I was so shocked. I mean, I was so taken back by the conditions they live in. Uh, the lack of resources, uh, the amount of people, they were so loving, so caring, so beautiful. <clears throat> I mean, for me, it was probably my best Ramadan. Like all of my Ramadans that I travel, my first Ramadan in any country is has each time been my best Ramadan ever. And because you're just in a state of hidma and service. And I cried in seeing some of the conditions that some of the families, especially the families of the students that were learning Quran with, with the Sheikh. And that's where I vowed to the best of my ability that we would get them out of these conditions with the help of the Sheikh uh, as well, obviously, to build these people a new home. And that was the first project that we did is build a home for the families of the students of Quran because they these the families live with their extended families, very similar to how, the, and this is part of their culture. They are not predominantly Spanish speakers. They speak a Mayan dialect, Sotzil, so they do have a very tribal way of living and being uh, and conducting within their culture. So over that following next year to my 
trip. Let's see. So that was Ramadan 2015. When I returned February 2016, we did a ribbon cutting ceremony and they asked me to make the dua of opening the house. And, and then we also had uh, two wedding ceremonies to bless the house for the first time. And it was a very tearful and beautiful experience. And again, then we just continued to try to build a few more homes for other families, like the, the first families, because they have been Muslim, the, the original families from around 1996 or 1997, if, uh, between that time period. Uh, so we, we went according to the elder families. We tried to assist them the most. And then each year we would buy the children new clothing, things for Eid, a toys for Eid. Uh, we would uh, sponsor uh, like them getting, uh, renting like a small community space and having like inflatables for the children, those bouncy inflatables. There's like video and pictures of me bouncing around in my abaya with the kids laughing. And the kids were just so, I mean, I mean, the love that just poured out of their hearts was just, they were holding to Islam. I mean, holding to the rope of Allah by Allah. That's how beautiful that was. And then, in, so in 2016, and then I went back, I had also gone back for Eid uh, as well outside of uh, Ramadan. And then I went back in 2016, in February 2016. And one of my friends who was my Umrah sister, uh, who she just recently helped open a orphanage in Zanzibar for Muslim children born with AIDS. So she came with me in February 2016. After that trip, she was going to Cuba to go on a family vacation, and the family vacation ended up her visiting the Muslim communities around uh, the proximity of Havana and maybe an hour or two away from Havana. So she was the first one that established the contacts through the Imam from Mexico. He gave her some contacts in Cuba. She made the first contact in Cuba. That was in February, 2016. Then I continued going to Mexico in Ramadan, 2016. She went to Cuba. Uh, Ramadan 2016, I then went to Cuba for the first time uh, with some scholars uh, in October of 2016. So that began my trips to Cuba, which now I just recently went to Cuba for the seventh time. Uh, I've gone several times during Ramadan, and my heart is completely crushed right now that I will not be able to go this year for Ramadan. And, you know, we don't even have a way to realistically even get them the aid to then get them the food packages that we would provide during Ramadan. Because right now in Cuba, they are, there's usually severe food restrictions. Now the restrictions are even more severe. And uh, I've traveled to Brazil uh, because we were fortunate to uh, help in the translation 
of Dr. Asad Tarsin's book, Being Muslim. It's been translated uh, in Spanish and in Portuguese. And then to launch the book in Portuguese uh, last year in 2019 with Dr. Asad, we launched the book in Brazil. So we visited Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, uh, we also did a Being Muslim book launch in Spanish uh, in 2018 in the Dominican Republic. So I basically visited Mexico, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, uh, Brazil, and now recently Panama. Wow, mashallah, that's a lot of places. Do you have a favorite? <sighs> Cuba has a special place in my heart. I mean, I'm Puerto Rican, and the door has never opened uh, to visit Puerto Rico. Uh, I pray, inshallah, it does. Uh, but I would say Cuba is the closest to Puerto Rico, and that does have a special place in my heart. Where did the idea come from to have Being Muslim available in Spanish and Portuguese, and why that book? Well, again, with my connection to Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Dr. Asad Tarsin, <clears throat> when I was in uh, the Bay Area, he was uh, one year. I think it. I think it was maybe in two thousand. It was either 2015 or 16 that he was compiling the book. And I went to the Bay Area and I took the Being Muslim class. Like he was launching the book. He gave me a pre-printed copy and asked me to look it over. And then also his brother, who has been my Wali for several years, Dr. Ustad Amjad Tarsin, was teaching the class um, in Seekers. Uh, so I had taken those classes as well, and I really loved, I mean, I love the way that both Dr. Asad and Usted Amjad teach, especially as a new Muslim, especially not having that type of grasp of the Arabic language. Inshallah, I'm in the process of learning to read. I'm up to four-letter words. I've, I've read my first page and a half official of the Quran in Arabic. My Quran teacher would be so proud who is also from the Bay Area, and she's also part of the Zaytuna College family. Uh, both of her children are Hafiz of Quran, and one is now graduating from Zaytuna College. Mashallah, may Allah elevate her and her entire family. She'll be so happy to hear that I plugged her like that. She's going to be like, oh, I love my Quran teacher, Mashallah. She comes to Amakasid as well regularly. Nonetheless, that tangent. Um, so I was, it was 2016 RIS and I had started a conversation prior to RIS with Dr. Asad and something just said to me, I was asked, oh, I was asking him because I was giving any of the new Muslims I was working with a copy and I asked him, could I get uh, a larger amount of copies possibly at wholesale and he said sure no problem just speak to this person and I said to him did you ever consider doing the book in Spanish he was like well no but that's a great idea so that's where the conversation started and basically um, we then met at RES knowledge retreat uh, I sat with him and his wife and we discussed it and 
we put the proposal in at that time and they already had someone that translated purification of the heart from Spain in Spanish and he translated it and then someone from Almakasset who I travel with, uh, Usted Hamid, uh, did the editing. Uh, and alhamdulillah, uh, then uh, Sister Rebecca uh, from Brazil, who I'm connected with through Dr. Umar Farouk, she had, after we launched the Spanish book, she approached him to possibly start the book translating it in uh, Portuguese and then I worked with her to help her execute the project and get it printed and and get it to the people that needed the book and as we speak they reprint it in Brazil as they need it and they teach classes in Portuguese being Muslim. Really really amazing it's amazing project mashallah. Alhamdulillah. Okay, I think I just have one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll finish it off with this. Um, what advice do you have for new converts or those who are thinking of taking their shahada? Most importantly, take your time. It doesn't matter how long you take to do anything. What I've learned from all the major scholars that I turn to in working with converts, it doesn't matter what you are doing. Just take your shahada. Everything else will come. Don't let anybody make you think that you have to do anything faster there are no deadlines take your time do not go on the internet picking and choosing things to learn from find credible sources and or a friend that can put you in that right direction get the being muslim book but most importantly take your time go to visit different places and go to places that you feel most comfortable wanted that they're showing you mercy care and compassion if you go somewhere and you don't not get that type of response and edub and etiquette from the people there don't stay there go somewhere that you feel comfortable and know that you can go on this path to allah in peace and knowing that the people that you are around will help you Thank you so much. Wayaki. Such an amazing story. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. You're welcome, Heba. I know that was probably a long one, but I guess. No, no, you know. it was perfect length. It was really, really good. Okay. Alhamdulillah. I'm glad we got all those stories in there. So. Alhamdulillah. I know I kind of like went all over the place. It's as it was coming to me. And there were just, you know, bits that just, you know, uh, like I said, there's certain stories I've never told on any kind of like public platform like this. Thank you. Thank you for sharing them. I feel very happy and grateful that you Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Well, stay safe, my love. Thank you. You too. Okay. Assalamu alaikum.